If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, starting with verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph, oops, sorry, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful morning, Lord. It's a morning that's made even more beautiful by the fact that we get to worship you. I pray now that as we look at your word, that you would just move me out of the way and let your word go forth and just do a mighty work in the hearts of the people here. I pray that your spirit would come descend upon your people, that you would give them understanding, and that you would teach us from your holy written word. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. I pray that we would just continue to do this in the coming minutes. Jesus and I pray. Amen. So now, let's say you're driving down Highway 99, and it is perfectly clear, which is amazing, right? And so this car, it comes up right behind you, and it starts tailgating you. Okay, whatever. Well, after a while, he starts honking his horn and flashing his high beams at you. Okay, now that's kind of annoying, right? This goes on for a little while. Finally, he pulls into the other lane, passes right by you, and then he cuts you off. He hits his brakes, which causes you to brake really hard. Then he speeds off. Well, a few moments later, you see the CHP come speeding right by with his lights flashing. What are you thinking right now? Of course, a minute later, you see this cop over to the side, and he's pulled over that very car that was tailgating you. Again, what are you thinking? How are you feeling right now? <laughs> Revenge is a funny thing. Because I think that most of us would agree that it's not the best course of action to seek revenge. It's not exactly the most Christian-like behavior. But if we're being honest, or at least if I'm being honest, there's something very satisfying about revenge. Right? There's something satisfying about it. And you see this echoed in many movies and books and TV shows. We like a good revenge story. Well, today, we are going to look at the story in the Bible that quite possibly has the best plot for revenge. We're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. Now, just to give you an idea of the importance of this story, think about this. Everything you need to know and everything that God wants you to know about the creation of the entire universe is summed up for us in just two chapters. That's it. All of creation, you want to know how it happened? You get two chapters. Yet there are 13 chapters in Genesis dedicated to the life of Joseph. 
So more than 25% of the book of Genesis, the book of origins and beginnings, is about Joseph. That's how important Joseph is historically and to the biblical narrative as a whole. And so before we even get into it, let me encourage you guys to go home and read Genesis 37 to 50 on your own. Either today, later in the week, whenever, you'll be doing yourself a huge favor by doing this. Now, when I first told my wife that I was going to speak on Joseph, she gave me this look. And the look basically said, you're an idiot. <laughs> and of course, she was right. And that's because the story of Joseph covers 13 chapters. On any normal occasion, this would be equivalent to like a three to six month long journey. And today, we're going to attempt to do it in about 30 minutes. So we are going to sprint. We're going to sprint through this last section of Genesis. And we're going to focus on just two things. Joseph's perfect perspective and Joseph's peaceful passing. First, Joseph's perfect perspective. Verses 19 to 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So here is Joseph's perspective. Evil was done to me, but God is in control, and he meant it for good. That's his perspective here. And what I want to do now is briefly go through the life of Joseph in hopes of giving you a better understanding of why this statement right here is so amazing. Why is this statement so significant? So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, we're going to start with verses 2 to 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So this is how we're introduced to Joseph. He's a child of favoritism. Jacob loves him more than all his other sons. And this is punctuated by the robe that Jacob gives to Joseph. And so in verse 4, we see his relationship with his brother summed up in just one word, hatred. They hated him. Now, as the story goes on, Joseph has these two dreams. And in both dreams, his brothers are depicted as bowing down to him. And in the second dream, even his mother and father bow down to him. And it says this in verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, the interesting thing here is that his brothers were jealous of him. Typically, if someone tells you about a dream they had, say someone tells you about a dream they had last night, you wouldn't be jealous of that person because of the dream that they had, right? Because it's just a dream. I mean, if you're going to be guilty of jealousy, be guilty of being jealous of reality. I mean, be guilty of someone's wealth or possession or their popularity. But don't be jealous of someone's imagination. You shouldn't be jealous at all. But don't be jealous of someone's imagination. 
Well, I think this kind of gives us an indication that the brothers here, they can sense that these are not your normal everyday dreams. Now, after this, Jacob, he sends Joseph to Shechem to check up on his brothers. Shechem was 50 miles away from where he was. Remember, no cars. 50 miles away. He gets there, and some guy tells him, oh, your brothers went to Dothan, which is another 13 miles away. And then we see this in verses 19 to 20. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. In verse 19, they call him this dreamer. And in verse 20, they say, we will see what will become of his dreams. Well, they were clearly disturbed by these dreams. And they wanted to make sure that these dreams of his never came true. This, again, I think tells us these are no ordinary dreams that Joseph had. Now, when Joseph arrives, they strip him of the robe and they toss him into the pit. And they would have left him there to die if it weren't for Judah. Now, good old Judah, he decides that getting rid of their problem, that's not good enough. So instead of killing him, they decide to sell him. And what's his rationale for this? Well, in verse 27, Judah says, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother. Well, what a caring brother, right? <laughs> well, you know, he's, he's our brother. We, we really shouldn't kill him. Let's sell him. Now, for those of you here who have siblings, as annoying as they might be sometimes, you wouldn't actually sell your brother or sister, right? I mean, you would joke about it, and you would joke about it a lot, and you might even come really close. But I hope most of you wouldn't actually do that. Well, this is how far jealousy and hatred can take you. And so they proceed to sell Joseph for just 20 shekels of silver. And the tradesmen carry Joseph off to Egypt, where he's sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Now, Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his entire household. And so just when things seem to be going well for Joseph, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of trying to seduce her. And so he's thrown in prison. Now, while he's in prison, he meets two of Pharaoh's officials who have dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams for them. Three days later, the cupbearer is set free, but he forgets about Joseph. Now, two years later, Joseph is brought out to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he rightly interprets that there are going to be seven years of great harvest, followed by seven years of severe famine. Well, the interpretations, they seem pretty spot on. And so it pleases Pharaoh. And Pharaoh ends up making Joseph the vice president of all of Egypt. Vice president. Now, two years into this famine, his brothers come to Egypt looking to buy food. They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. And so he proceeds to test them. And after testing them, the brothers are there standing in front of Joseph at his mercy. And so we finally get the big reveal. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we, the readers, have anticipated from the very start. Joseph is finally going to have his revenge. And so now we pick it up in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, starting with verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. 
he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. This is a pretty great scene here. You got to kind of put yourself in the brother's place. These guys are in Egypt, but they're Hebrews. And one minute, everyone is doing their servantly duties, whether it's dusting or fanning Joseph or feeding him or whatever. Next thing you know, the second most powerful man in Egypt, he cries out in Egyptian, which you don't understand. All of a sudden, everybody clears out. They're gone. No one is left, not even the interpreter. So now, how are you going to communicate? How are you going to tell this ruler what you're thinking? All right? It's just you and him. And then it says in verses 2 to 4, And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So here it is. This is the big reveal. I am Joseph, and they are dismayed. And this word dismayed is actually better translated as terrified. They were terrified. And they had every reason to be terrified. This man who literally controls the fate of their lives is the very brother who they sold into slavery many years ago. And then Joseph says this, come here, right? come closer. And I imagine that as they came closer that this was not a race. I mean, they're probably pushing each other, right? You go first. No, no, no. You go first. Well, it was your idea to sell them. You, you should be in the front. And then Joseph says this, you sold me into Egypt. And at this moment, they got to be thinking, oh man, we are in trouble now. We're in big trouble. It's a done deal, right? Joseph shall have his revenge. And then he says this in verses 5 through 8. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you've sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, my first thought when I'm reading this is, what is wrong with you, Joseph? I mean, these are the fools that sold you into slavery. I mean, get them, sl slap them up. You've got to do something, right? I mean, for sure, I mean, Joseph is a way better man than I am. And Joseph, he does hear what very few people would have the guts to do. Not only does he not take any sort of revenge, he actually provides for them to make sure that they're taken care of. I mean, to me, Joseph, it would have been gracious if Joseph just said, I'm not going to kill you. You can be my slave. That would have been gracious enough. But no, he provides for them. He takes care of them. And so the entire family moves to Egypt and lives there 
under Joseph's provisions. Why? Why does this happen? Why doesn't Joseph take revenge? Well, notice in verses 5 through 8 that at least three times, Joseph attributes all of the events of his tumultuous life to the sovereignty of God. He says, God sent me. God sent me before you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And so this amazing perspective is one that Joseph has had throughout his entire life. Now, finally, this brings us to chapter 50. Joseph's father is dead now. And the brothers, they're worried that Joseph is finally going to take his revenge. And if you're reading this for the first time, you might be thinking, oh, okay, this makes sense now. Out of respect for his father, he didn't take revenge on his brothers. He didn't want to cause his father any more harm. But now that daddy is gone, all bets are off. The brothers are finally going to get what they deserve. But as we already read, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. So hopefully you understand a little bit more now why this is such an amazing statement. Hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, forgotten by those he helped. After all of this, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And this is how Joseph ends his revenge story, with a tremendous statement of faith in the sovereignty of God. They meant evil, but in his sovereignty, God meant it for good. And you cannot overlook that word, meant. It doesn't say that God saw evil being done and then he had to come up with plan B. It doesn't say that God had to react to one of Satan's crafty little schemes. It says here that God meant it for good. This was God's plan from the start. Oh, they meant evil. Their intentions, they were definitely bad. And they really meant to do Joseph harm. But God, in his sovereignty, he says, my ways are so much higher than yours. Everything that has happened, everything that is happening right now, and everything that will happen, I have planned out from the very beginning. And it is good. God is not reactive. He is proactive in accomplishing his ultimate purpose. And so Joseph, he rejects any chance for revenge because he sees God's providential hand moving throughout his life. Let's just review the events really quickly. Joseph's brothers, they just happen to be at Shechem. Now, when he gets there, he just happens to run into this guy who just happens to overhear his brothers talk about going to Shechem or going to Dothan. Judah happens to come up with the idea of selling Joseph, and the first people who pass by just happen to be going to Egypt. Now, out of all the people he could have been sold to in Egypt, he sold to Potiphar, who works for Pharaoh. So because of this, Joseph gets thrown in Pharaoh's prison, where he just happens to meet two of Pharaoh's officials who just happen to have two dreams for Joseph to interpret. And then Pharaoh just happens to have two more dreams, which makes the cupbearer remember Joseph, and this finally puts Joseph in front of Pharaoh. You get the idea, right? 
if any one of these things does not occur, or the timing is off by just, just a little bit, I mean, maybe Potiphar, he gets delayed on his way to the slave market. What if he has to use the bathroom? Or maybe the traders that pass by, they are headed anywhere else in the world besides Egypt. If things don't go exactly the way God planned it, we could be looking at an entirely different outcome. Jacob and his family could die, and therefore the nation of Israel would cease to exist. But Joseph, good old Joseph, he knows that for any of this to make sense, it has to be God. God is the only way that this makes sense. And so Joseph, he looks back on his life with this perfect perspective. God is in control, and he knows what he's doing. And so he can say, I was hated, and I was sold, and I was in prison as part of God's plan, and I know it is good. So the one guy who no one would blame or even think twice about if he took revenge, he never seeks revenge because he lived his life with the perfect perspective that God is in control. And we see that in the sovereignty of God, the very ones who sought to kill the dreams actually ended up fulfilling the dreams. The dream killers became the dream fulfillers. Only God, right? It's only God. This was Joseph's perfect perspective. And the question for you is, what is your perspective? Can you say that God is in control when you're in the pit? What about when you're in prison? Joseph was a slave or in prison for 13 years. Yet he never lost hope because he knew that God was in control. God is in control of everything, and it is good. Do you believe this? Does your life reflect this? For some of you, life is so frail. I mean, one event, one little thing doesn't go your way, one little hangnail, and life is over. All hope is lost. And then you wonder why your friends and your coworkers, they don't want to come to church and they don't want to become Christians. Well, it might be because they look at your life and it seems like it sucks. I mean, they're probably, you know, standing there saying, well, you know, Billy, he says that he's a Christian and all, and he talks about going to heaven and how great it is, but from the looks of it, I think I'll take my chances over here. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be some annoying, fake-smiling, happy-faced Christian all the time. Right? I'm not saying that you have to act like nothing ever goes wrong. But a legit question for many of you is this. Where is the joy in your life? Where is the joy that comes with a life that is hidden in Christ? It starts here, with the right view of God. God is sovereign, and He is in control. Let this perspective change your life. Everything that happens in your life has been planned out by God from the beginning, and it is good. This is what Joseph knew. This was his perfect perspective. Second, Joseph's peaceful passing. And this one will be a, a little bit shorter. Joseph's peaceful passing. 
verses 24 to 26 of chapter 50. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. These are the last recorded words of Joseph. And he says something pretty interesting here. He says, when God comes, I want you to take my bones with you. Well, that's kind of weird, right? I mean, wouldn't it be weird if you were walking down the street and you saw some guy carrying this bag or a box, and you're like, hey, what's in the bag? Oh, it's just my grandpa Joseph. You know, he made me promise to take, me, take him with me when I went to Europe. I mean, that'd be kind of weird, right? That's just like a little bit weird. And so you might conclude that, well, maybe Joseph, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about here. I mean, after all that he's been through in life, he's probably just old and senile at this point, right? But if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see that out of all the great things that Joseph did, the writer of Hebrews lists this as his great act of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So, unlike his father Jacob, who demanded to be taken back to Canaan and buried there, Joseph is content to wait until the exodus. And Hebrews calls this a great act of faith. Why? Why? Because this is what Joseph is saying. He's saying, don't take me back now. Take me back when God fulfills his promise. And so while laying there on his deathbed, what is Joseph concerned about? He shows no worries or regrets or fears about his life or where he's going. And instead, he reminds them and he encourages them to live in anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Specifically, God's promise to take them out of Egypt into the promised land. And I believe that in verse 26, the wording here is very specific, that he was put in a coffin. All the other major translations, they have a very similar wording. Either it says he was put in a coffin or he was placed in a coffin. But if you look at the wording regarding the deaths of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, it says that all of them were buried. But nowhere in Genesis does it say that Joseph was buried. And I believe that's because Joseph wanted his body to be a symbol to the people of Israel. It was to be a reminder to them that God is coming. So every time they looked at the place where Joseph's body was kept, that's what they would be reminded of, that God is indeed coming to fulfill his promise. And it may not have made sense right there, but in Exodus, it sure made sense to them then. Now, what's even more amazing to me is this, what it says about Joseph's belief in God. You got to remember, this is the vice president of Egypt. And it's not like vice president that we think of in the United States where nobody cares about him and he has no power or anything like that. This guy, he could do anything he wants in Egypt. Barnum, doesn't matter. He could do anything he wants unless Pharaoh overrules him. 
And so him and his family, they're living the dream. They are in Egypt, and they are living the good life. So then, why in the world would they want to leave Egypt? And why, of all people, would Joseph look forward to leaving the land that had been so good to him? It's because of what Joseph knew about God. And in essence, Joseph is telling them, you guys might think that you got it good now, but God's promise holds something better. Joseph knew that God's promise is always best. God's promise is always best. And so at the end of his life, Joseph doesn't have the normal fears or worries or concerns that you see in many people who are on the verge of death. And instead, his last moments are filled with peace, knowing that God is coming. And so Joseph is able to have a peaceful passing because he rested in the promises of God. He didn't hope. He knew that God would be faithful in keeping his promises. And this is why Joseph is able to pass away peacefully. Well, some of you in here, you can't even sleep peacefully through the night. I mean, you're so worried about this and that. You're anxious, you're mad, you're scared, you're sad. Let me encourage you to start living and resting in the promises of God. God is with you. God will never leave nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. God is for you. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He works all things together for good to those who love him. This is just the beginning, just the beginning of the promises God has for his children. And many of you in here, you know these promises. You know of these promises, and you know them well. But the question is, do you live as if they're true? Do you live as if they're true? If so, then you too can have a peaceful passing, resting in the promises of God. So in the story of Joseph, we see his perfect perspective and his peaceful passing. Now, with a story that is just this amazing and this great, there's so many things that we could talk about here. We talk about forgiveness and say that the story is about forgiveness and reconciliation. And that would be true. It's definitely about forgiveness. We could talk about trusting God in the midst of trials. We talk about temptation and purity or the dangers of hatred and jealousy and favoritism. All of these would definitely apply. But what I want to focus on this morning is the bigger picture. The amazing part of the story of Joseph is that the story of Joseph is ultimately not about Joseph. The story of Joseph, the first savior of Israel, points us to the last and only savior we will ever need, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. After 13 chapters of establishing how great and how righteous Joseph is, Joseph no doubt has a central place in history, right? 
Well, here, Matthew chapter 1, we have the lineage of Jesus. It's a genealogy here. And what would you expect to find in the lineage of the king of the universe? Well, royalty, greatness, integrity, purity, all the things that are found in Joseph, right? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Verse 2. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. At the very least, you expect us to say, Jacob the father of Judah, and Joseph, who was his favorite, and who saved Israel, and then his brothers as well. But Joseph, he gets no mention here whatsoever. In fact, he's just grouped in with the rest of the brothers. And it is Judah who ends up in the lineage of Jesus, not Joseph. Well, Judah, right? Judah, he, he's the one that came up with the idea of selling his own brother. Well, what in the world is going on here? I mean, this makes no sense whatsoever. Well, again, this is how you know that God is at work here. Because any human writer would have written Joseph into the rest of the story. But it is Judah who takes prominence. Now, when, and I mean when, all of you go home and you read chapters 37 to 50, you will notice a subplot. Judah is slowly being shaped and changed. And we looked at chapter 45 earlier where Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. But we didn't see what happened right before that. In chapter 44, Joseph has his cup put in Benjamin's bag. And upon finding his cup, he declares that Benjamin has to stay behind to be a slave. And this is when Judah speaks up. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 44, verses 33 and 34. Now, this is Judah talking here. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So what do we see here? Judah, he shows concern for the well-being of his father. And what else? Judah the one who masterminded Joseph's sale into slavery, he now offers himself up to be a slave in place of his youngest brother, Benjamin. And so you see this subplot start to take place, and you see this change in Judah's heart. And as we already read, it is Judah, not Joseph, from whom the Messiah would descend. And so Joseph, he is sent to Egypt by God, so that Israel could be preserved, so that the line of Judah could be preserved, so that the Savior of the world could be born in the manger thousands of years later. And so this story, Joseph, sent out by Jacob, hated and rejected by his brothers, stripped of his robe and sold for 20 shekels of silver. But in the end, vice president of Egypt, saving the lives of the very ones who sold him into slavery. 
Yes, this is a great story about a really great man named Joseph. Yet the purpose of the story is to point us to one who is greater than Joseph. He who was sent by the father, rejected by his brothers, stripped and beaten and sold for just 30 pieces of silver. Yet he is now raised up and seated at the right hand of the father and he sits there offering salvation to the very ones who hung him on that cross. And that includes you and me. Our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what the bigger picture is. That's what the story is about. And for most of you, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Because that's what this book right here is all about. The Bible is about Jesus. It's not just some manual about how to live better or be a good person. The Bible is one big story about Jesus. And if you know this story, and if you know Jesus, then you know of all the great promises God has for you. But for those of you who do not know Jesus and who do not know this story, you have a very different promise. And it doesn't sound nearly as good. And that promise is eternal condemnation. If you do not have Jesus in your life, you will be condemned. That is your promise. And God always keeps his promises. But there is hope. Hope is here. Because every single person in this room was once just like Joseph's brothers. Hateful, evil, deserving of wrath and vengeance and condemnation. But just as Joseph was sent to Egypt to save those who sought to kill him, Jesus came to earth to die on a cross to bring salvation to those who hate him. And he is standing there now waiting for you to come to him so that all the promises that are written in this book right here can be yours. And he says in Mark chapter 1, all you have to do is repent and believe in the gospel. Come to Jesus. Enjoy him. Live in light of his promises, and you will find rest. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Now, before we get out of here, I want to show you the end of our story. What ends up happening with Joseph? Joshua 24, verse 32. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. You see here that in the end, God does not disappoint Joseph. The promise is kept, and he is taken up from Egypt and buried in Canaan. Those who know God will not be disappointed. Do you know God? Do you have this perfect perspective? Can you pass through life peacefully? Only those who have given their lives over to Jesus can say this. God is in control and I will rest in his promises. 
And those who rest in the promises of God are never disappointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are sovereign. You are in control. And that is a good thing. If any one of us were in control, we would mess things up badly. But you are a good and gracious Father, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, most of all, in whom we have our hope. May everybody leave here today with the hope of salvation in their hearts, Lord. May we go out from here just in awe of how awesome and how glorious and how majestic you are. And may other people just see that. May we just not be able to contain ourselves, Lord, because it's written on our face, it's written on our hearts, and our lives are hidden in you. Thank you again for this time. Jesus and I pray.